case we haven't met, my name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here, and just so good to be together this morning. Whether you're here in person or you're joining us online, just grateful. So during my college years, I did my very best in order to save my money to pay for school. During the summer months when I would live at home, I would squirrel away all the money that I made during my summer jobs, and then even during the year while I attended school, I took whatever odd jobs I could get to pay for school. Namely, I worked in the cafeteria dish pit washing dishes. Um, But college is expensive. Attending a private Bible college like the one I did is particularly expensive, and I wasn't able to commute to school, so I had to add on the expense of paying for room and board. And so despite being able to pay for the majority of my schooling, I still had to take out a student loan, and at the end of my college days, I had a loan of $5,000. And for a young guy in his 20s, that felt like a huge debt. Sometimes it felt insurmountable. After graduation, Andrea and I, we got engaged, and I got a job in ministry, a great job, but one that didn't pay so much. And I began to wonder, how am I ever going to get ahead? I still had to pay for rent and groceries. I didn't even have a car yet at this point. And I still had this student loan debt hanging over my head, which was depressing. It seemed like a huge burden that I wondered, how am I ever going to pay this back and at the same time get the things that I felt like I needed to live? However, at the same time that I graduated, I had a relative who passed away. It was my great aunt, my dad's aunt, and she never had children. And I'll never forget the day that my dad came to me and told me that her estate was being dispersed. That's the day where those people who are named in her will, they receive an inheritance. It was the same day that I was trying to figure out a payment plan to pay back this student loan while at the same time, like, get the things I needed to survive. And my dad told me that his aunt, who again, didn't have any children, she left an inheritance to all of her nieces and nephews, like him and his sibling and others, because they were like her kids. But not only that, she also left an inheritance to her great nieces and great nephews, and that included me. And that, yeah, all right, is right. And that news changed everything. Now I could afford to buy groceries. I could start looking for a car. And though my student loan was a big deal, the inheritance that I received from my aunt was bigger, way bigger. With that, I was able to wipe that debt out. And that's just what we see in Genesis chapter 3, which is what we're going to be looking at today. It is the story that tells how sin affects this world that we live in and all of our relationships. Sin's impact is so pervasive, there is not a single part of our lives that goes untouched by it. But God's grace is also present in this story. And just like that unexpected inheritance I received was far superior to my student loan debt, sin 
may be a big deal, but God's grace is way bigger. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will, uh, and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor, you will give birth to children. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So this is uh, about four weeks we've been into this series on the book of Genesis that we're going through, Genesis 1 to 11, called the Origin Series. And if you haven't been able to join us for any of these previous sermons, I just encourage you to go back and to give a listen to some of the earlier sermons so that you can have a greater context for what we're talking about this morning. 
But the idea behind this series is that this story isn't just the story of these first people long ago, but this is the story that also tells our story individually and our collective story as humanity. We learned a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Reese preached on Genesis chapter 2 how we were designed by God to flourish and to do so we need harmony in four different relationships. We need harmony in our relationship with ourselves, harmony in our relationship with others, with the rest of creation, and of course we need harmony in our relationship with God. And last week, we began to see how that all began to unravel when Adam and Eve, who represent all of mankind as they sinned, when they were tempted by the serpent, also known as the devil, and Eve reached out and she took and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam did so too. This is the one thing that they were commanded not to do, the one thing that would cause death to enter this world. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil we learned last week represents human independence from God, living as if we can get along fine without him. It would be like if I decided to go scuba diving in the ocean, but decided I was going to forego taking an oxygen tank because I didn't feel like I needed it. It would be foolish, right? Just as we were designed to breathe oxygen, we were also designed to live this life relying upon God. At the heart of all of our sin is this desire for independence, believing that we can get on in life without God or simply believing that our ways are better than his. Today we see what a big deal our sin is, how our rebellion has enormous consequences, how it begins to quickly destroy each of those four relationships that we need to be healthy if we are going to flourish if we are going to live the good life that we desire. First, look at how the passage describes our relationship with the rest of creation being damaged. In verse 17, it says, Because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it, All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the ground has now been cursed because of humanity's rebellion. The very ground, God said in Genesis 2.25, that Adam was to take care of. But now Adam will struggle with thorns and thistles, trying to get food from it. We see how this curse continues to impact humanity today, right? Crops are destroyed by severe weather conditions. The heat domes, wildfires, the flooding that have happened in recent years in our province, they may seem like just a distant memory to us because like right now when things seem to be going well, you know, it seems okay. It's, we hardly take notice of those things. But for people in our province who are still rebuilding their lives after these events, and they are anticipating the next catastrophe, let alone think about those in the southern hemisphere whom we just heard about from Phil who continue to experience these climate disasters with increasing frequency and greater intensity. 
When most of us experience the brokenness of creation in these ways, we recognize this is not how things were intended to be. Something deep within us tells us things have gone sideways. We want to say, this isn't right. This is because of our rebellion against God that our harmony with creation has been fractured. I find it very telling, don't you, how this ancient story is about humans who took from creation something they didn't need. And yet, they extracted it from the earth because we thought we could use it for our advantage anyways. And the result was that creation suffered and in turn it inflicted pain upon humanity. This seems much more like a present-day news story than it does ancient history or theology. But the point is clear. Both the creation and humanity will continue to suffer as long as we ignore the creator and exploit our relationship with his creation. There's this old hymn entitled, This World is Not My Home. I don't really like that hymn. I understand that it may feel like this world is not our home because this world is broken. And you and I, we were not made to fit into a broken world. We were designed for a world that thrives. But this world is our home. This world was designed to be our home. And when it was created in Genesis 1, it says that it was made good and that it was blessed by the Creator but that it was our sin and our rebellion that violated creation. And now it, it is a shadow of its former glory, especially as we continue to violate creation. But it's not just our relationship with the creation that's been broken by sin. You and I are not how we were made to be either. Verse 16 describes how humanity's relationship with the self began to unravel. It says that Eve now will struggle with pain when her body produces babies and that labor and birth will be very intense. I have never witnessed someone going through such intense pain as when my wife gave birth to my two boys. It was awful. I don't know why in movies and in TV shows they make those birth scenes seem so like comfortable and happy. It's horrible, at least from my point of view. In the end, it was great, but it was like, oh, this is so awful. Giving birth, you know, up until the industrial age, it was the leading cause of death for women, and it continues to be a leading cause of death for some women in many parts of the world today. And then in verse 19, Adam is told that he is going to return to the ground from which he is formed. Our bodies break down from injuries, right? Or even from old age. Or we see people suffering from illness. And each of these pains is a reminder of the effects that, of sin that humanity has brought upon itself by rejecting God. Our society works really hard to find pain relief or cures for illness or even to reverse the signs of aging, not just because we fear death, but because we desire to live. We were designed to live. 
We weren't designed to die. But the wages of sin is death. And the Bible says that we earn that payment. We brought it upon ourselves. And the passage continues to describe how we broke that relationship with the self, right? Before they sinned, Genesis 2.25 says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And you may recall that I have said this phrase before and explained how uh, this phrase, naked and not ashamed, is an expression that meant that the man and the woman, they were totally at peace with themselves, Right? They felt no need to put on a facade or pretend that they were somebody that they were not because they were completely at peace with themselves. But the first thing that happens to them after they eat this forbidden fruit is that they lose the quiet self-assurance that comes from having your identity based on being made in the image of God. And verse 7 says that, Once they ate it, both of them had their eyes opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed together uh, fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. They were no longer at peace with who they were. They lost confidence in themselves. And because they now only see their frailties and their vulnerabilities, things that they had never noticed before or even worried about before because God's love and strength made these things not worth worrying about. But now that they are trying to do life on their own without God, they see how weak and exposed they really are, and it's no wonder that their first impulse is to try and cover up. I get it. I suffer from that very same impulse too. But a week and a half ago, I was in Ontario at our Baptist General Conference meeting with all of these pastors from all across Canada with a room full of pastors with far more experience than me, with really impressive resumes. You know, when they would come up to me and say, well, how's it going for you at Calvary Baptist Church? I would begin to suffer from like imposter syndrome and I'd give the obligatory It's going good, right? All the while wondering if my congregation at home has caught on yet about how much of a rookie I still am. Shh, don't tell them. But most of us struggle with our identity and the fear of being exposed for who we really are. And so we we push those thoughts away because they're even too vulnerable to admit to ourselves. And if we're not even willing to admit it to ourselves, we're never going to be willing to admit it to another person. And that leads us to that third broken relationship. Our relationship with others. In Genesis 2, the man meets his perfect match in the woman. She is like him, but different. She is strong and confident She is his equal. Their relationship is marked by trust and serving one another, friendship and mutuality. That is until sin enters the picture. In Genesis 3.12, the man, he blames the woman for his partaking of the forbidden fruit. He takes no responsibility for his own actions. He doesn't just blame the woman. He also blames God, right? The woman that you put here, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. 
And the woman does the same thing. She follows suit. In verse 13, she blames the serpent, right? The serpent deceived me and I ate. And this is what sin does. It tempts us to shift blame onto other people, never taking responsibility for our own actions. It's always somebody else's fault. And as a result of not trusting God, they no longer trust each other. They're no longer partners working in harmony together, but now their relationship, it's marked by competition and the desire to dominate each other. Old Testament theologian Sandra Richter, she writes, Genesis 1 makes it clear that Eve was designed as Adam's co-regent. In every fashion, she is presented as Adam's equal in Genesis 1, but with the fall, this mutuality is shattered. Adam and Eve's relationship has been all they could need or want in Eden. With the fall, this ideal partnership is transformed into the competitive grappling of two hungry souls. In 3.16, God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And when God says this, he's not prescribing this as a way of life to this couple. Rather, he is describing the effects of sin on their relationship. This is not the way he designed things to be. We learned earlier in this series that we were all designed for relationship. In Genesis 2:18, the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. So we all need companionship, whether that's from a spouse or from some good friends. But some of the greatest pains you and I will ever experience is when our relationship with another person breaks down and those relational wounds aren't attended to, which can often lead to separation or even worse, isolation. And whether it's a relationship with family or friends, with neighbor, or even the relationship between nations, the animosity and hostility that you and I experience in these relationships may have different causes, but... At the root of each one, it's the same thing. It's sin. It's humanity's refusing to live according to the will of our common creator. Then finally, we see how Adam and Eve's relationship with God, their creator, has been broken. Before they rebelled, the human humanity fully trusted God. They enjoyed their relationship with him. They loved him intimately. They depended on him. But Genesis 3.8 says, Then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool, in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Hiding is not something you do when you anticipate someone you love drawing near. I remember when my children were younger and I would come home from work and they would hear the key in the lock or the garage door opening and I could hear them pounding down the stairs, Daddy's home, Daddy's home. And they'd throw themselves into my arms and we'd hug each other. And yes, a father even lavishes his little boy with kisses. I love those days. But running away and hiding... That's what you do when your relationship is marked with lies and doubts 
and fears. Running and hiding from God is something that many people still do today. But now we may not actually identify it as running away from God or hiding from him, right? It looks different than that. It looks just like busyness, right? We fill our lives with so much busyness. We're going from one activity to another or we fill our lives with constant noise, right? We're constantly listening to streaming music or podcasts, watching another YouTube episode or Netflix And not that these things are bad in and of themselves. Many of them are profitable for us. But I also think one of the reasons that we fill our lives with so much noise and screens and activity is that we're afraid of what we might hear if we were just to pause and be silent. Perhaps we might hear God approaching in the cool of the day. And I guess my question for you is, Does his approach fill you with eagerness and anticipation? Daddy's home. Or does it send you running and hiding for the trees? I dare you, though, to stop running and hiding. I dare you to slow down and to give yourself the time and the space to draw near to God. The scriptures say to us, If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. It would serve many of us well to stop with all of the activity and to silently wait upon the Lord. Perhaps it might force us to stop and think about our relationship with God and the responsibility that we bear for that relationship not being all it was designed to be. Sin is all-pervasive. There is no part of this world or our lives that have not been tainted by its touch. Sin is a big deal. But God's grace is way bigger. See, we read in Genesis 3, it's one of these passages where it's so easy for us to see the effects of sin, right? This is the one where even myself as a pastor, I've come to this again and again to to show the, the impact of sin on this world. But we shouldn't overlook all the ways that God continues to show his grace in these verses as well. So let's take a second look. You know, as a result of Adam's rebellion, the earth produces thorns for humanity, But let's not overlook the fact by God's grace, it still yields food for humanity. In fact, loads of it. We produce enough food that we could feed this entire world. The problem is that curse, right? Genesis 3.19, it says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Again, Sandra Richter explains to us this phrase, sweat of your brow. It does not mean hard work but it's an idiom that speaks of anxiety, perspiration-inducing fear that humanity's life lives with a constant gnawing undercurrent of dread that there will not be enough, that our labor will not meet the need. The curse of Adam is limited resources, an insecure future in a world that no longer responds to our command. God could have allowed this earth to completely die out, but thanks be to him, it still produces for us. 
If only we trusted his provision enough to share it with those who have less rather than living in fear and and hoarding for ourselves. It still produces, which is a grace of God. And then when Adam and Eve, they feel ashamed of themselves and they try to deal with it by covering up, but their attempt to find safety and security is an abysmal failure. I don't know if you've ever tried to sew together fig leaves in order to make clothing, but it doesn't work out so well. And it makes terrible church attire. So what does God do? Rather than just letting them hide in their shame or saying, well, they made their bed, now they must lie in it. Instead, God clothes them. And by doing so, he comforts them. They were, and you and I are, unable to deal with our shame on our own. But God can deal with it. And he does deal with it. He helps the humans with their broken relationship with themselves. But this tells us something crucial about dealing with our own brokenness. A person is not able to deal with their shame or reconcile with who they are all on their own. We need help. We definitely need the help of therapists and counselors and psychologists. And thank God he gave us skilled people to help us with that work. But also, we are only able to deal with our relationship with ourselves through a relationship with God. We need his help to deal with that shame. Next is their relationship with one another. Even though Adam and Eve's relationship is damaged, they will continue to care for each other. And every time that you and I see a marriage or a friendship that is trying to work it out, where the people involved, they still care for each other, they still serve one another and forgive each other, this is also a huge sign to us of God's grace at work in this world. Right now, And I don't know why this is. Maybe it's because I'm like in middle age or maybe this is just like the spirit of the age we're in. I feel like so many relationships around me are just disintegrating. Whether it's one friend whose spouse has left them because they want to pursue a happier life on their own or adult siblings who are refusing to forgive but holding on to old grudges with one another right? It's actually a miracle that any of our relationships endure. In fact, that's exactly what it is. It's something extraordinary that maybe we take for granted. It's a gift from heaven. The fact that any of us have some relatively healthy relationships that haven't been ruined by our sinfulness comes down to God's loving kindness and grace. I'll just say that for myself. The fact that I have some relatively healthy relationships that haven't been ruined by my sinfulness and selfishness is a gift from God that I thank him for. And we see how much grace God continues to give the humans in this story in their broken relationship with him 
He could have just wiped them out and started all over again, but he doesn't. Notice he doesn't even call them out when he gets to the garden like an irate father might, right? Adam, Eve, you get out here from behind those trees right now. See, I'm good at that. I have practice. No, instead, he asks them this question. Where are you? As if he doesn't know where they are. Of course he does. He's God. But by asking them, God is coaxing them out. And rather than making them stand there in shame, in verse 21, it says that he clothes them with skins. Where did he get those from? I think God got those skins, obviously, from a dead animal. I think this means that something had to be sacrificed in order to clothe them. And I can't help but see how the good news of the Gospels begins to shine through God's gracious acts here in this story in Genesis 3. Do you see how making clothes out of animal skins to cover their shame foreshadows the sacrifice that God would make through his son Jesus and his death on the cross in order to cover our shame? Some would say, but what about not letting them eat from the tree of life? Why does God do that? Now they'll die. Right. And that is a grace too. You see, God doesn't want humans living in this independent, broken, unharmonious state forever. He doesn't want us to live forever in alienation from him, from ourselves, from others, and from the creation. We may feel like we do okay at times, but we're never really flourishing here like we were designed to. And so this is why God guards this tree of life with these angelic beings called the cherubim. But he has a plan still. And he's putting this plan in motion. It's a plan he begins to reveal here when he addresses the serpent in verse 15, saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and between the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, God is promising that one day a child of the woman will come and do battle with the serpent just as Eve represents the mother of all the living, so this child will represent the whole human race, and he will deal the death blow to this serpent. But not without suffering himself. The serpent will strike, and he will think that he has won the battle, but ultimately he will lose the war. He will eventually be crushed. And that's what we see in the Gospels. Right? That's what Jesus did at the cross. Satan thought that he had won when Jesus was killed, but it was only a heel strike. Christ was only temporarily wounded. Three days later, he rose as victor over the grave. Ironically, it was his crucifixion that death the fatal wound to that serpent. And not only did he defeat the serpent, but Christ's life and ministry his death and his resurrection, it begins to restore that full, fold, fourfold relational harmony that we need if we're going to thrive, that we need if we're going to live the good life that God desires for us. And if we put our trust in him, and if we start to live abiding and relying upon him, 
he will begin to To do surprising things. <laughs> the people at home are like, what happened? <laughs> but if we put our hope and trust in him and abide in him, he will begin to restore those relationships too. See, God's plan doesn't end here. You remember that tree of life and how it was cut off by the humans, guarded by the cherubim, because God doesn't want us living eternally in our broken sin state. He does, however, want us to live eternally in his kingdom with him as he designed us and the creation to be. In the Jewish temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. It represented God's presence, his dwelling on earth, and nobody was permitted to go into the Holy Holies except for the high priest and only once a year, and they had to do so with a lot of offerings and blood. A lot of sacrifice had to be made. And in the doorway of the Holy of Holies, guarding the entrance to this dwelling of God was this huge curtain. And in the book of Exodus, chapter 26, it tells us that on this curtain, it was embroidered with cherubim. Those same angelic beings that guarded the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. But now they are garden, guarding the presence of God on earth. But when Christ died, the Gospels tell us that that curtain was torn into from top to bottom. Through Christ's death, we can now enter the Holy of Holies. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we are able to receive this invitation to come to take and eat from the tree of life. If you place your hope and faith in Jesus, you no longer have to fear death. We can have hope for all of eternity, a life that truly flourishes. And we don't have to wait until we die or until Jesus returns. You and I can begin to experience the eternal life of God that he has designed for us here and now if we live our lives depending in and trusting on him. I hope in the story we have seen the devastating effects that sin has on this world in these passages, not just for Adam and Eve, but for all of us, for you and I as well. It's easy to see what goes wrong in Genesis 3, and in the same way, it can be pretty easy for us to look out at the world around us or even to look inside and to see what's wrong even within these walls or even within my own heart. But I think part of the challenge from this passage is that we take a second look, that we read the story a second time and see beyond just the brokenness, that we look and see how God's grace is still at work in our world and in you, and he's still at work in me. And we may see the brokenness and the sin, but I hope we all see God's goodness. And we see that and we give him thanks for it because he is a good and loving God who still has a redemptive plan for our lives. And for that, we give him praise. Sin may be a big deal, but thank God his grace is way bigger. 
I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And as they're coming up, would you stand with me? And I'm going to read from Psalm 103. The psalmist prays, praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Praise the Lord.